This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. It is 5pm in the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson. Let's talk about the price action this Monday. Uh, European stocks closing uh, higher today, uh, but in some ways a complete reversal of what we've seen recently. So the CAC Caron was up by 1.75%. The DAX was up by 2.21%. The FTSE 100 was only up by half of 1%. The reason for this Oil prices have come sharply down today. Commodity prices more broadly have come down sharply today. So the mining stocks and the oil stocks, which have helped London out recently, fading to the bottom of the pile today, where the the industrial stocks came roaring back. Hence the outperformance coming through from the German market. Just in terms of what we've seen in the commodity market, let me just give you a quick update there. Then we'll get Charlie Pellet with some headlines. Uh, Crude. In the United States is down by six and a half percent. Brent crude, the global benchmark, is down by around six percent today. So a huge move to the downside in the energy complex. Aluminium's down sharply, copper's down sharply. Remember, you've also had this lockdown uh, being announced in the city of Shenzhen, one of the major ports in China, the fourth biggest port in the world, and that is reducing demand for commodities. So that's what the markets look like. Let's get a headline update with Charlie Pellet. Thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. War in Ukraine risks a second spike in UK inflation this fall and increases the likelihood of a recession. This according to the Resolution Foundation. The London-based group says price growth could exceed 8% four times the Bank of England's target. Britain's over 50s were most likely to leave the workforce in the pandemic, suggesting most of the more than half million employees who fell out of the jobs market won't be coming back. A surge in economic inactivity where people are out of work and not looking for a job is part of what has tightened the UK jobs market, pushing up wages and fanning inflation. The government and Bank of England are looking for ways to loosen that pressure and halt the rise in prices across the economy that's coming from higher wages. Pfizer says it will no longer start new clinical trials in Russia and that it will donate all profits from its subsidiary in the country to Ukraine relief causes. At the same time, the drug maker says it will continue to supply medicines to Russia out of fear that vulnerable patients such as children and elderly people who rely on its therapies could be harmed by any halt. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Um, A number of updates on Ukraine that I need to bring you. Uh, The White House, Bloomberg is reporting, is discussing plans for Joe Biden, the US president, to visit Europe. Uh, That would certainly help cement uh, a very, very strong coalition uh, that has sprung up between the United States uh, and Europe during this crisis. A lot of people expected that we would see division uh, even within Europe. That hasn't happened. Uh, A very united group and 
Joe Biden keen to support that group. Uh, we've also had news today that uh, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, is planning to deliver what can only be considered as a very rare wartime speech to the US Congress. He'll be pleading for aid. That's going to come Wednesday on the same day as the Fed. You've got EU diplomats debating details uh, of a fourth sanction package as well. Uh, so the pressure continues to be applied uh, to the Russian government uh, as we continue to see events unfolding uh, in front of us in Ukraine. Uh, the pictures continue to be incredibly brutal that are being beamed back from various cities across the country. And over the weekend, we saw that attack just near the Polish border, which I think sent a shiver down the spine uh, of a lot of NATO members. Let's get the take on what the latest is and how we should expect things to develop from here. Bloomberg's Mark Champion joining us now. Mark, um, we, we are continuing to see incredibly unpleasant pictures coming from Ukraine. Uh, the attacks seem to be becoming more and more brutal on the key cities. What can you tell us about the trajectory we're on right now? What do you expect to happen now? What's the base case? Well, uh, you know, you, you have to hope that the pressure on both sides is rising uh, quite fast. As you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of pressure on uh, the Russian economy. Uh, the campaign has not gone well for the Russians. Uh, there isn't an, an obvious good exit for them uh, to, to do this in a way that really uh, works for President Putin in the way that he expected it. Um, at the same time, uh, it is a brutal campaign. Uh, in Mariupol today, you know, finally, uh, there was a successful attempt to get some people out. Uh, but that city has really been uh, subjected to a semi-medieval type siege in the sense of uh, the, the civilians not having food, not having water, not having heat. Uh, and, uh, you know, the municipal authorities say that uh, well over 2,000 people have been killed. Um, so it is brutal. Um, and there is pressure on both sides to agree, but there's, the, the demands began so far apart uh, that it's still hard to see exactly how they quickly uh, come to an agreement where the Russians are saying they want uh, territorial recognition, that Crimea is part of Russia, they want yep. territorial recognition that the, the, uh, the Donbass states, uh, provinces are actually independent states, as only Russia has recognized. Um, and that's... Uh, very, very difficult for the uh, Ukrainians to agree. President Zelensky is going to be speaking to Congress Wednesday. He's going to plead for more aid. What is expected to come out from that? Well, I mean, he has been incredibly effective in getting, uh, as you said you know, earlier, a, a, a far stronger than expected and more unified than expected uh, response from the Allies towards Russia. Uh, and a part of that is really down to him and the way that he has been able uh, to express the kind of determination that Ukrainian, um, Ukraine's military and its people have shown in, in trying to resist. Um, and that's, that's had a, a significant political impact. Um, he spoke to the U.K. Parliament. He's now going to speak to uh, the U.S. Congress. Uh, he's been pushing very hard for things like a no-fly zone, which is uh, really a, a kind of red line that uh, the, yep. the alliance has so far been absolutely unwilling to cross. But, uh, he, you know, he will push harder. You, you talk about the unwillingness to, to put a no-fly zone into place. The concern is that you would have Russian and NATO forces fighting it out in the skies above Ukraine. The fear then the situation could escalate and you could see ground troops being pulled in. Over the weekend, though, we did see the, the attack on a military base very close to the Polish border, 15 kilometres away, like really close. The potential for things to go wrong 
in executing those kinds of attacks is very high. I, the, the margin for error, weapon systems uh, malfunction, the guidance systems malfunction. Uh, how big a risk are the Russians running enacting, poly, uh, enacting um, attacks that close to the border? Like if one stray missile went over the border into Poland, presumably that would have a chilling impact on this conflict. Uh, it would, and the, uh, that is part of the message. You know, Putin has, uh, on several occasions, made it clear that he's willing to escalate. Uh, he talked about you know, uh, raising the nuclear alert status uh, for for his uh, strategic arsenal, uh, and he's, you know, this is another occasion where he's sending a very, very clear message, saying that he is, you know, he he's willing to uh, to escalate. He also is, is trying to say that. Uh, the weapons that are pouring in from the West uh, in terms of anti-tank, anti-aircraft weapons, um, that uh, he has a real problem with that. This was a NATO base. So he was trying to send a, a very clear signal. And the response from the U.S. has been equally clear in the sense of saying, you know, one step over the line and this war changes. Uh, but it is, without question, this is brinksmanship and it is dangerous. Mark Champion, always a pleasure to get an update from you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening. Bloomberg's Mark Champion on the latest uh, in the Ukrainian conflict. Up next, we're going to talk about the economic impact of all of this. The ECB more hawkish last week than anticipated. Where do we go from here? Is Europe heading for recession as a result of this conflict? We've also now got to fold in uh, the shutting of the Shenzhen port in China, which is going to be adding fuel to the fire when it comes to the inflationary narrative. Catherine Nice, PGM Chief European Economist. Next, this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. The ongoing conflict in Ukraine, the shutting of the Shenzhen port in China, hugely inflationary. The war in Ukraine also has the potential to really slow growth down. In fact, both factors do as well. How are central banks going to react? We caught up with Catherine, Catherine Nice, PGIM's chief European economist. It's a tricky spot for central bankers because clearly this is a negative shock that is going to push down other things equal on economic activity, but push up as well on inflation. So it really creates a dilemma for central banks. And, and that's common across all the major central banks you were talking about. But that said, there are important nuanced differences uh, that I think are worth highlighting. Uh, you talk about the impact of the conflict on the outlook for these central banks, which was already tricky uh, going into this conflict. Uh, starting with the ECB, given that they uh, met last week, this is clearly a very negative uh, shock for the Eurozone. It's also pushing up on inflation there. But given the huge uncertainty, the proximity of the Eurozone to the conflict, I was surprised uh, by the ECB's decision to announce a faster taper. Uh, so at the margin, I would have expected that they would have, you know, waited it out to see uh, how things evolved in Europe before taking yep. a decision. But clearly they're focused on uh, purchasing, uh, ending their, their purchases of asset taper. The situation for the UK is very different. We're seeing here signs of nominal wages, inflation expectations, really running at rates that are above 
above uh, the level consistent with the MPC's inflation target. So I expect the Bank of England to still be on course to raise rates at its next policy meeting, but we might see a shallower uh, uh, and slower uh, hiking cycle here in the UK. Catherine, one of the concerns uh, just in the last couple of months has been this divergence in policy between the United States, between Europe, and between uh, the, the Chinese uh, central bank as well. I'm curious now with the introduction of the Russian invasion into Ukraine, what does that actually mean in terms of the policy divergence between the United States and Europe when you do start to see Europe far more exposed to Russia than the United States is? Does that change the playbook at any point? Uh I think it does. And we also have to remember that Europe going into the conflict, yes, was, was in a good place in terms of the economic recovery. It was strong. The labor market in Europe is, is strong. And so that's a bit of a saving grace going into the conflict. But uh, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. Europe, unlike uh, what we see in the US, has economic activity at levels that are really quite some way below potential still. And uh, yep. this conflict is likely to slow the pace at which we're going to get back to potential. So it risks not just increasing near-term recession here in Europe, but also long-term economic scarring coming out of these crises for Europe. So quite a different picture, uh, I think, over here in Europe compared to the U.S. Catherine, we're going to have Eurogroup finance ministers meeting this evening. There is a growing expectation that we are going to see a fiscal response to this crisis. What does that fiscal response look like? How big do you think it could be? How quickly does it come? And if we do get a substantial package, does that make it easier for the ECB to hike more aggressively? Well, the ECB's decision last week, I think, does put more pressure on fiscal. And, and you know, rightly so, we might see some front-loading of these next-generation EU funds, particularly the loans component, into, let's say, 2023-24. But I think a really big fiscal expansionary uh, package funded by EU debt is, is we're not quite there yet. The view of the uh, the European economy from Catherine Nice, PGIM's chief European economist. Up next, we're going to talk about the implications of shutting down the fourth biggest port on Earth. Uh, the Chinese authorities announcing that over the last 24 hours. Uh, the city of Shenzhen next to Hong Kong uh, being shut down as a result of China's uh, zero COVID policy. We've seen the implications on supply chains before of these kinds of shutdown. What happens next? We will discuss. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. 5.18. So Chinese stocks last night absolutely battered. A number of different reasons for this, one of which is there is concern growing that China may ultimately be pulled into the Ukrainian conflict by supporting Russia. That could lead to sanctions uh, and a big hit to the economy. The other factor is that the zero COVID policy continues to exist in China. The Chinese authorities shutting down the huge city, the huge technological hub that is Shenzhen. Um, that sent shockwaves through the global economy and through the global supply chain story. What impact is that going to have? How should we think about this? Craig Fuller is the guy you want to ask this question to. He is the CEO and founder of the company that analyzes freight data around the world. It's called Freight Waves. We caught up with him a little earlier. 
Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty. This is something that we thought we were largely done with or, or that was behind us is the COVID impact. But China's zero tolerance policy has reminded us that supply chains are still subject to massive disruptions and uh, the COVID element in supply chains is still ever present. Um, if remember back in the United States when Omicron hit, uh, we, we really just sort of treated it as an unresolvable and sort of gave up on trying to contain it and just went about our lives. Uh, China doesn't seem to operate that way or want to operate that way. And because of it, I think we'll we'll see a large uh, disruption to global supply chains. This is expected to spread or would expect it to spread if we've seen it, the precedent that was set in the West. And if it does, and China decides to continue their zero tolerance policy, it could have massive implications, very similar to what we saw in early 2020. Craig, can you talk us through the timeline here? If you do start to see the shutdown now in the ports, when does it kind of come back? When do you see the read through into the rest of the world? And where does that translate into things like shipping rates or trucking rates? Yeah, it takes about six to eight weeks for uh, when you see a shutdown for it to impact the Western economies just because it takes a while for that freight to ship. The good news for uh, the American freight market, at least short term, is that there is a lot of uh, still uh, bottlenecks and uh, port uh, at the ports. There's a lot of containers that are uh, still available. So we, we have some short term uh, uh, demand that will keep the freight market moving. But if this goes on for months, or continues to be disruptive, we have fits and starts, it could have profound impact. As you mentioned, uh, freight rates, particularly those out of China, uh, it actually depressed those rates. If we stop, if we start seeing ships not hauling cargo, but actually sitting at ports, uh, we'll see freight rates drop uh, because there won't be any demand. Uh, and so we'll see uh, the alternative uh, short term really drop, but long term, We'll also see a surge because a lot of those products will, will have, there'll be a substantial backlog. So I think it all depends on how long and how uh, uh, pervasive this is throughout the economy uh, really will tell us whether this is a repeat of 2020 or short-term blip. Craig, um, as we speak, WTI crude, the U.S. benchmark falling below 100 bucks a barrel. Uh, that's a $35 swing this month. How is that kind of volatility impacting the freight industry? Diesel, certainly a major factor here in Europe right now. What are you seeing? How much of this is kind of easy to pass on? Do the models cope with this kind of volatility? What impact is fuel having? Well, the good news for the larger trucking companies, which have not had a lot of relief lately, uh, just because of the driver shortage uh, and the lack of being able to fill drivers, is that they'll be able to pass these costs on to shippers, people that buy capacity. So 75 to 80% of the capacity in the United States is fixed under contracts, and those contracts enjoy fuel surcharges. So a lot of those cost increases uh, will be passed on to uh, shippers and then ultimately consumers. Uh, as it relates to the spot market, that's where the squeeze is. When you see this really high, rapid increase in fuel prices, is it squeezes out the owner operators, which operate in the spot market. Uh, and uh, they did see a tremendous impact uh, uh, last week and over the last two weeks. And so uh, short-term relief will be positive uh, for the trucking industry. But we are seeing signs of a slowdown in freight demand. Uh, it's really, in many ways, caught us off guard because you normally expect the shipping season to pick up in March. March is one of the best months in freight, uh, particularly in the domestic surface market. And that has not shown up this year. And so uh, it's hard to understand what is causing that. 
but we are seeing a slowdown in freight and therefore spot rates uh, for those owner operators, they're not able to pass on those fuel surcharges to, to shippers because uh, they're simply just chasing the rate down. Craig, a lot of what's driven some of that commodity volatility you were just talking about has been, of course, those geopolitical tensions with Russia, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Can you speak to a little bit about what that means for the shipping market in particular, specifically around the Black Sea area? Well, I, I think any when you have disruptions and you see a lot of the agricultural commodities and other commodities, energy related, uh, and, and just any of the mining commodities that come out of uh, Ukraine and Russia, that is has a, a tremendous impact on the global economy. Uh, but I think a lot of that is really European related. We do see high uh, increases in rates uh, for these products and commodity prices really accelerate, which impacts everybody. The good news for North America is that we're a net exporter of the items that are seeing these rapid increases, whether it's agriculture or uh, a lot of energy commodities, yeah. uh, we are a large producer of those. So we, in some ways that benefits particularly the freight market because uh, a lot of the industrial activity in the United States is tied to the, those commodities. So whether we're talking food or whether we're talking uh, energy or energy related, a lot of our industrial economy is actually uh, benefits when you see high demand. So in some ways, but Craig, uh, at least Craig, long is that, term, is that it could have a net uh, increase in demand and in manufacturing in the United States, and that is a positive development. But certainly uh, that will have a tremendous impact on prices. It could create uh, uh, an acceleration of inflation. All of that is, has a negative uh, impact on uh, global markets. That was Craig Fuller, the Freightwaves founder and CEO. Uh, up next, we'll get a headline update with Charlie Pellet. We are going to bring into the conversation as well Bloomberg Opinion's John Authors to get his take on the long-term ramifications for the global economy of the sanctions that are being applied to Russia and the impact of effectively a failed harvest this year in Ukraine. Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world, basically, but certainly the breadbasket of Europe and North Africa. What are the societal impacts of sharply rising fuel prices, a complete absence of some of these key grains to feed huge populations in these areas? We'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio, 5.30 in the city of London. So European stocks finishing broadly higher today. Industrial stocks coming out on top. The auto sector leading banks up quite nicely. Uh, mining stocks, commodity stocks, oil stocks, all kind of being pushed lower as we see a big drawdown in the price of crude today. Other commodities following as well. This as we see the potential for a slowdown in the Chinese economy as a result uh, of Shenzhen and other regions being shut down. Um, over in the United States right now, the Nasdaq is down by one. 0.99%, let's call it 2%. The S&P down by six-tenths of 1%. Those are the markets. Let's get a headline update. Here's Charlie Pellet. Thank you, Guy. Negotiators from Russia and Ukraine held further talks today by video link amid cautious hints of progress from both sides, even as fighting continues, with officials in Ukraine reporting that overnight shelling killed two people in a residential building in northern Kyiv. In Rome, the U.S. and China began their first high-level in-person discussions since Moscow's invasion. Beijing earlier rejected American reports that Russia had sought its military assistance for the 
invasion of Ukraine as disinformation. The Kremlin has also denied the claim. Prime Minister Johnson met with North Sea Oil and Gas Companies today to discuss UK energy security and investment. Spokesman Max Blaine said Johnson is, quote, keen to improve the UK's energy independence and that energy firms have a vital role to play. It has survived 150 years of changing fashion and spared many men the dilemma of deciding what to wear, but the pandemic has proven to be the final nail in the coffin. The men's suit has officially been retired from the male wardrobe. Now that's the sartorial verdict of the UK Office for National Statistics, which has removed the menswear staple from the UK's inflation basket, a collection of more than 700 items that are updated annually to ensure it is representative of the goods and services that consumers typically spend their money on. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Um, what are the long-term implications of the war in Ukraine and the effective isolation of Russia? Well, one that is already starting to emerge is significantly elevated grain prices. Interfax was reporting earlier on today that Russia may ban the exports of grains. Uh, the Ukrainian countryside has long been the breadbasket of Europe and North Africa. It is unable to be planted. The planting season is about to happen. It is unlikely to happen. So there's going to be a long-term impact here uh, of the uh, the Ukrainian conflict. What does that mean from a uh, societal point of view? What does that mean from an economic point of view? Well, let's start off our conversation this evening with John Authors on that note. John, you wrote a really nice piece talking about some of the implications of all of this. We don't yet fully understand what the end game is for some of these sanctions. We don't fully yet understand when Ukraine will be back producing wheat, etc. What do you think is going to happen over the next few months and years? Well, uh, first of all, I don't know. But uh, I can give you some of the scenarios. And the thing that bothers me most is that it isn't clear at what point it uh, the, we can sustainably lift sanctions having imposed them. Um, if you have uh, some kind of a very messy compromise, does that mean, uh, and, and the fighting stops, does that mean all sanctions are lifted? Um, if you have what also seems very likely that well, one of the most plausible explanations that the, the war carries on for a while and Russia wins in the ex to the extent of deposing Zelensky in taking Kiev, uh, does that mean basically that the sanctions have to stay on forever? Uh, is it possible to lift sanctions while uh, Putin is in power? Th those are the things that are most concerning at, at present, because it's just not clear exactly what the sanctions are there to do. And it's not exactly clear how we can justify lifting them, having imposed them. Okay, so there's no clear off-ramp at this point. No. If they stay on, hmm. what do you think the second-order, third-order effects are going to be? Well, broadly speaking, you are then beginning to talk about a true second Cold War, in economic terms at least. Um, obviously, there's a big imponderable question, uh, and there's been the uh, back and forth today over whether, whether America was right to brief that uh, China has been talking to... Russia about military aid. Um, 
the really imponderable question is how China decides to come down on this particular issue. Um, China having vastly greater power to hurt the West via sanctions than Russia, but also having a fairly open economy and could do without um, hurting itself by imposing sanctions. So that's that's perhaps the single most important question. Um, but broadly speaking, you, you, you do begin to move towards um, a new world order that looks like the one between 45 and 90. The good side of that is that it sparks a lot more investment, much as you saw in after 1945, a lot more investment in the West in building up their capabilities to survive without stuff from uh, from uh, Russia and maybe China as well. The disadvantage is that it's probably very inflationary and very disruptive for quite a while, and a matter of years, before you come to a new equilibrium. What does it mean for the poorer parts of Europe? What does it mean for the poorer parts of North Africa? I'm, I'm now starting to think about the kind of mm. second order geopolitical yes. impact. That's that's an interesting one. That, I, I, I've actually had an interesting back and forth with uh, with Charlie Robertson of uh, Renaissance Capital. Um, the Arab Spring happened uh, in early 2011 at a point when food prices were uh, at then an all-time high, which are depending on how you measure it, has just been taken out just in the last few weeks. That certainly appeared to be a catalyst for what happened in the Arab Spring. However, the Renaissance Capital data shows that, in fact, in Tunisia, where it started, there was only um, 1% food inflation over the year leading up to when that happened. It's not clear that food food prices obviously really antagonise poorer countries they create much more risk of civil unrest they tend to lead rather than to regime change uh to the change a change in individual leaders so this could well mean the one interesting example is imran khan who i still think of as pakistan's cricket captain rather than prime minister but he may well lose his job over in large part because of what's going on with inflation with prices in in Pakistan. But that doesn't mean that the the nature of the Pakistani regime would change. It's just um, a standard change within a regime. Nevertheless, Pakistan, nuclear power. Um, Yes, it matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but yeah. yeah. Um, Let's just turn to another potentially inflationary force, which is China's ongoing zero COVID policy. Yes. Shut down the Shenzhen port, fourth biggest port on the planet. Yes. Huge implications, um, huge technology implications as well. Number of, of large technology companies have plants there. Hmm. Do we understand what if China maintains this again? Do we understand how inflationary this is going to be? We were we were just beginning to see some of the supply chains healing. I'm assuming that that this is going to further make life difficult for yeah. long elongated supply chains. Hmm. It's going to mean that we're going to get more reshoring, almost at the same point that we were making about the new sort of Cold War. If you yes. get more reshoring, less efficient, more inflationary. Yes, I I I don't I don't see any arguing against against that that scenario that you've just just put out there i think what's intriguing for in terms of the the questions about whether it really does pan out that way it's whether china carries on 
with um, zero COVID, which plainly did appear to work very nicely indeed in the first year of the pandemic. And with Omicron, which is you know not as severe and very much more contagious, um, is a much more much less uh, sensible, tenable way to do it. Um, we also have a similar issue with Xi Jinping that we have with Putin, that uh, if he's going to back off from zero COVID, he has to admit he was wrong, um, yep. which may be a, a serious issue. So, so it, it, it's a very uh, it's it's a very worrying development. If you look at um, the other thing that it's worth noting is that uh, Evergrande seems like a much less important topic of conversation, given that we're now talking about wars and invasions uh evergrande's bonds hit a new low today the yield is now well over a hundred percent um you know the the risk of some kind of a credit crunch of uh real problems in china caused by uh you know the, the final comeuppance yep. from their property bubble is is it has not gone away and it's intensifying well okay so let's just talk about that yep. and also fold fold in the the russia story as well because yep. russia's got some bonds that it needs to some dollar bonds that it needs to make payments on this week and it's unclear mm. exactly how the the plumbing mm. is going to work to allow that to happen so potentially uh, a russian default coming up as you say ongoing problems within the property sector uh, a default cycle actually starting to emerge a little bit uh, in europe how much of this could be systemic quite a bit uh, I, I mean that's that's the uh, that's the worrying part of it. Uh, that that said i have to say in my opinion in terms of what I was scared of, in terms of things that I was worried would happen or might happen by now, um, a major credit event hasn't happened yet, and I'm quite relieved about that because I think it could have done. Um, so far, you're certainly seeing you know, credit spreads increase. You're seeing you know, what, what looks like it might be an incipient default cycle get underway in Europe, but it really could still be a lot worse given the scale of the scale of the crisis um for the time being the scale of how how cheap the financing that people were able to lock in two years ago is still muffling that effect but i so i'm not i'm not too i'm relatively less concerned about that than many other things that doesn't mean plainly that the, the risk that it turns into a serious problem is 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 not something you can avoid okay so that that then brings us to the fed Yes. Wednesday. Um, th- there seems to be this sort of debate about whether or not the Fed is going to tighten to the to the point where it starts to worry about a recession, mm. or it's going to desire a recession because that's the only way that it can take enough demand out of the economy to slow the inflationary impulses down. Mm. Where, which one do you see as being most likely at the moment? Is the Fed worried about a, fe- a recession or does the Fed want a recession? I certainly don't think the Fed wants a recession. Um I, if I, my best reading of where the Fed is is that they still see a risk of overheating, particularly as it pertains to inflation in this country, and they see enough strength in the economy that they are more concerned about will we need to force a recession later yeah. down the road rather than worried that an, a recession is about to hit them. Plainly, there are. You're quite right. The the, the uh, mood in the market opinion in the market is beginning to shift towards actually the bond market really does seem to be thinking there's a recession coming um force caused by the fed well yes and, and obviously the ukraine isn't helping is, but, but, is, isn't helping yeah. and is a new element that has 
but tip okay, but no, 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 but yes. my point is, is this yes. a recession that is caused by the consumer having to retrench because they're having effectively to pay for super high gasoline prices and other products, or is it a, a recession caused by the fact that the Fed is going to tighten quite a lot and probably have a meaningful impact on the housing market and slow other sectors? Yeah, down? I, I'm inclined still myself. I remember the how many commodity prices and housing prices were, were shooting upwards before Ukraine. I'm inclined still to say the former, that, that that's why I think the Fed will continue to be hawkish, that inflation beyond a certain level becomes a threat to growth rather than an alternative to growth, if you get what I mean. That, 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 uh, that this is a, this is, um, you can't let inflation yeah. get much higher without endangering growth in itself. So I what, suspect ha- that's what's Sorry, what do you think the dot plot's going to tell us? How big an upgrade do you think we're going to see in the dots this week, which signals the kind of the Fed members' intentions the, and how they're going to vote? The one that would be most interesting, and where I suspect there might be a hawkish surprise, is in the terminal rate. Yep. Um, I think that the terminal rate really has to be somewhat higher than is currently projected by the dots, or right. certainly by the street. Um, I. That would be very in, that that could be the critical yeah. one. I I think is is that I would have thought that you might see the medium of that going up by twenty five or fifty bips, and that Ooh, would matter. That's a lot. quite chunky. Okay, yeah. John, great right. stuff. Thank yeah. you very much indeed. Really interesting. Bloomberg's John Authors uh, from Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, up next, we're going to focus a bit more on that commodity story. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is the cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Uh, The nickel market is still not open after the frenzy uh, of the beginning of last week. Uh, The reason for that could be that the fund at the centre of the crisis, the Chinese fund, it's not a fund actually, uh, it's a nickel producer uh, that had a margin call, a huge billion dollar margin call as a result of its short positions uh, positions in the market, has yet to fully secure a funding package. We understand that is coming shortly uh, and is going to be led by JP Morgan and that will allow effectively the nickel market to reopen. But this has done a lot of damage to the LME uh, and it's caused all kinds of chaos uh, in terms of what has been happening in the metals market. Let's bring in somebody you haven't spoken to on this program for really quite some time. Eddie van der Volt, Bloomberg's Eddie van der Volt, rejoining. Great to see you, Eddie. Um, it's been a busy few weeks. The metals market has been in a huge state of flux. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening with the nickel market, and then we'll kind of go from there. What is your impression of the damage done to London, the LME, as a result of this crisis, they really kind of, in some people's minds, messed up because basically what they did was they let trading carry on. They let it carry on until the next morning after a hugely frenzied session. I think it was the back end of Tuesday yesterday, and then were forced to cancel a bunch of trades. It has been absolute chaos, hasn't it? I mean, and yes, I think it has caused damage to the reputation of the LME, and I think it has caused damage to to confidence in the LME, because I think, you know, people will now not know if they see... Uh, if they if they see trades on her on rubble, will they will they get them cancelled? Uh, it, 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 it's 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 I think this is going to be something that the metals markets uh, is going to going to take several months, you know, if not years, uh, to 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 work through. What is the state, do you think, of the metals markets at the moment? Metals markets that relied relied so much on Russian supply. 
yes, absolutely. So, so nickel obviously relies a lot on 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 Russian supply. It also relies a lot on the on on wider uh, on wider on Russia for wider commodities. For things like uh, palladium, we've seen some really wild swings over the last couple of days. So, I think we haven't seen the the full fallout of this uh, this the war in Ukraine and so on. What what are, are these metals replaceable? I'm assuming you can't do you can't simply just switch, turn a switch and get new supply. I, I know Tanzania is, is useful in terms of supplying some of these metals. South Africa will be in the mix as well. But but nevertheless, mm. this is this is stuff you can't replace quickly. Right, absolutely. So I think the the, the problem is that geographically, right, there, there there are there are options, right? There are other places that we can get some of these metals from. Palladium, for instance, we can get from South Africa. Nickel is produced in other places. But the but the problem is that ultimately you need you need nickel if you're going to produce batteries, if you're going to produce yep. stainless steel. There there are, there are no other options, right? I, I can't change chemistry. Can't change there the periodic are, table. You, yeah, exactly. But nickel in, in the production of batteries is, is, is absolutely critical. So this is, this is a problem for a lot of traders. Is it a problem for companies like Tesla? Is it going to become a problem for, I think it's companies, a problem like for Tesla? companies like Tesla? I think it's a problem for companies like Tesla. I think it's a problem for companies even like, say, the, uh, for, for, for Daimler, for, 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 for a lot of other you know, manufacturers that absolutely, their futures rely, on the one hand, on things like palladium, on creating, um, you know, vehicles right now, and they, they need stainless steel for that. But it also, you know, for their long-term plans, and it shows yeah. just how vulnerable, you know, companies are for, you know, if, if, if for pushing this green agenda, right? We, we still need these old miners and these old metals, yep. you know, to build that future that, that, that everybody's well, talking about. Yeah, it's, it's ironic. We're trying to wean ourselves off Russian gas. And the ultimate sort of choice, therefore, would be to go for greener, more sustainable energy. But ultimately, as you say, we are now capacity limited in our ability to make that switch because of the very war uh, that is causing the problems with gas. So does that mean that we're, we're going to lean further back onto coal? It was interesting that Uniper, mm. the, the German utility today, was up strongly after a note suggesting that actually the UK, which held talks today with North Sea producers as well, is effectively mm. back in the business of relying on coal and relying significantly more on oil and gas is going to make, and is going to make investments in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think I think never have we seen more clearly that the, 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 the green economy of the future is going to have to be built on the old economy of the past. And we're going to need, you know, we're going to need greater inputs right now to produce those outputs that we need in the future. And, and that means that we're going to rely very heavily on things like gas power plants, probably coal power plants even, right, to, to, to kind of wean us off. Yeah. Off the, off, but we're off, not going to have the gas uh, because Russia's not going to give it to us, so we're not going to buy well, it exactly. from them. And I think, I, I think that's why we're going to have to rely on things like, you know, even on coal or perhaps on nuclear. I think that's probably where, where everybody's hoping the, the, you know, the, the, the hope is. But then for that, you, you also need metals and you, you need uranium. And, you know, you, you can't get away from the fact that we are pulling this energy from the bowels of the earth. And so, do you? Your, your impression is that prices are going to remain elevated for really quite some time. 
for a lot of commodities, yes, I think so. I think so. I think, I think you know, some of these wild spikes that we are seeing now, no, they're not sustainable. Even, you know, oil is coming back a little bit today. But I think what we are looking forward to is more volatility in commodity markets. And I think we are now seeing that. And the, w- what's problematic is we don't know where that volatility is going to hit. And what's problematic is that as that volatility hits, it, it raises the cost of hedging right at the moment yeah. when, when, when consumers of energy and consumers of, you know, commodities broadly would like to hedge their exposure. They are finding that it's becoming more expensive. Absolutely. And that volatility we saw in the nickel market, just one example, maybe an extreme example, but nevertheless, as you say, just one example. Eddie, great to have you back. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Eddie van der Volk joining us on what is happening in the commodity market. Uh, he was mentioning what's happening in crude right now. Crude is down really quite sharply. WTI uh, down by nearly 8% right now in the States. Brent crude down by 7.2%. We'll certainly keep an eye on what is happening there. Next couple of days, really just about the build-up to the Federal Reserve meeting Wednesday. That is a huge moment for these markets. Hope you enjoyed the show. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 